From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to a very special edition of the Are You Not Entertained podcast. Uh, joining me, as always, from the lake, uh, by the lake, near the lake, is the man himself, Roger Mitchell. Hi, mate. Hi, Grant. How are you, mate? Good. I'm doing very, very well indeed. I am in quarantine, so uh, life is still confined, but that's that's fine. I, I have my dog. Good. He's keeping me sane at the moment. Now, you today, my friend, are going to be answering questions rather than asking them, I imagine, as part of a Apparently, panel, a very special yeah. panel that we've got together. Okay, yes, yeah. indeed. Let's see how you go with that. We've got a very special panel joining us. We have Angus Kinnear, the Chief Executive of Leeds United. We have Tom Harrison, the Chief Executive of the English Cricket Board, the ECB, not the Central Bank, I hasten to add, but the English Cricket Board. And we have Jim Chaplin, the CEO of SRI, who are very kindly sponsoring this. SRI is the preeminent uh, executive search firm in the sporting industry. And with so much going on in the world of sport and so much that you know we've been talking about every week, Rog, this is a great opportunity to get leaders in the industry in, in, in very different parts of the industry to kind of come together and maybe flesh out some of the things that you, know, you and I and Giles have identified as important topics over the last uh, several months. Yeah, and I think we're very lucky, thanks to, to SRI, who have brought this panel together to be able to speak to people who have been at the very sharp end of uh, a whole lot of the disruption we always talk about. You know, Leeds United, which is one of my favourite English teams, Marcelo Bielsa, we've talked a lot about on this podcast, and, and people we got have. to know Angus a little bit uh, uh, on the documentary. You know, and Tom at the ECB is... I think, arguably, one of the top administrators of a sport. And, you know, he's living a sport that is dealing with a growing beast called the IPL, threatening calendars, threatening how everything else has to fit around it. And, you know, we'll probably get into all these shifting plates, seismic changes that we've seen in the last couple of months. And the great thing is we can see from so many different perspectives, not just the boring old groundsman this time, we can hear the real experts. Yeah, there we go. So, you know, with, with that being said, what, what do you say we bring the real experts in? Absolutely. Well, General Tom, Jim, Angus, welcome to this podcast and, and a, a welcome back to Roger, who's always here with me. I can't get rid of him these days. He seems to be stuck to my hit, which... Never, never. <laughs> is, has its good and bad points. Gentlemen, um, look, there's so much going on in the world of sport and it's it's always a good chance to get together and talk about this stuff. Uh, yeah, the, the, the thing that I guess Roger and I have been hammering on about is is the change in in business models is the importance of content and rights and the importance of data in in this kind of new world of sports. So I kind of want to get into that. But before I do, I'd love just to give people a little sense of your background so they can understand where your kind of sporting allegiances have come from. So Tom, perhaps we can kick off with you. Just give the listeners a little bit of your background and and your kind of connection to sport from a young age. Yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks, Grant. And uh, um, thanks for having us along. Um, Yeah, look, my my connection with, with sport is like most, like many people, 
you know, it goes back to the childhood days at school. I grew up overseas in, in South Africa and, you know, sport there was really the, uh, was, uh, pretty much what you spent most of your life doing. So um, the venture into cricket came uh, quite early in life. Uh, and when I came back to the UK to live for the first time when I was 15 years old, um, it was cricket really that gave me the connection to, uh, um, I guess, understanding young British kids at that point because there was nothing else that really connected me to a young British right, 15-year-old right. apart from my ability to bat and bowl. Um, so, um, you know, cricket was really that thing for me and, and it's been been a passion ever since. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to play some county cricket in the mid-1990s um, quite briefly, but um, really enjoyed that experience and uh, it's kind of been in the blood ever since. And so when business career uh, came through it was my intention really to move into into the sports landscape and I was I was lucky enough to get a uh, get a role with IMG uh, fairly early on in my career and um, as you'll know from you know your experience in sport and uh, it's a great place to start and get an all-round experience of um, of uh, uh, of sporting uh, of the sports environment um, so that was great and um, it took me overseas spent a lot of time understanding media rights and that kind of um, space, understanding uh, the role, the connection between business and sport. Uh, and when this role came up in about six years ago, um, got a call from a certain Mr. Jim Chaplin um, to suggest that um, maybe I might want to have a look at this. And uh, uh, to my astonishment, they appointed me um, shortly afterwards. So, and I've been there sort of for the last seven, <laughs> and more importantly to Jim's, yeah. Um, so we, and we've, uh, we've obviously, you know, it's been a, it's been a, a really interesting and um, uh, an exciting kind of six or seven years in, in the chair at ECB. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll get onto a lot of that excitement as this conversation progresses because it's it's an excitement that's kind of uniform right across the sporting landscape. Jim, pass a quick background from you, and then we'll uh, bring Angus in. Well, thanks, Grant. Yeah, so I'm very similar to Tom, actually. I mean, I was cricket-obsessed from a very young age um, uh, and sport-obsessed generally and um, grew up, played... Uh, I was lucky to play a bit of um, county junior cricket and then some good cricket at Durham University and, um, and and still occasionally turn out now, although my last cricket match, I was run out without facing, um, which led to my kit being <laughs> thrown in the bin. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Professionally, I've been very lucky that um, uh, you know I've been working in the sports industry now for eleven years with with SRI um, uh, and and got the chance to work across the sports I love and, and particularly done plenty in cricket and and, and in football. Um, so it, it's lovely to have that connection back in the sports industry uh, on a professional basis as well as still being able to play the game every so often. Yeah, well, that's uh, the ability to still play the game. I think for all of us uh, on our advancing years is probably the, the biggest blessing of all. That the standard obviously slips a little bit, but the desire never does. Uh, Angus, thanks for joining us again. If we could just get a little bit of a background for the listeners for you before we jump into the meat of the conversation, I think it'll help frame things nicely for everybody. Yeah, I had a, a background in in sports marketing with uh, with with Coca Cola, and then um, and then joined uh, uh, Arsenal to uh, oversee the move from Highbury to to Emirates Stadium. I spent ten years at Arsenal, and um, before moving on to West Ham, and uh, and uh, took West Ham from from Upton Park to the Olympic Stadium, and I'm now at uh, now chief executive at Leeds United. Um, playing a small part in taking them back to the Premier League um, and uh, and loving being uh, in an industry that I'm absolutely passionate about and have always been passionate about. And at the same time, trying to broaden my roles within within sport and where I can add value. And I'm currently also uh, chairman of, uh, of British Weightlifting and uh, and waiting at the moment to see whether uh, whether the, the Olympics are going to happen or not. 
Presumably the uh, the move from one London club to another as an executive is slightly less fraught than it would be as a player, one could imagine. Yeah, you don't get booed in the way into the office. So, uh, so <laughs> it's... Uh... <laughs> or at least if you do, you know something's gone horribly wrong. Exactly. There's, there's, there's still some rivalries and, uh, and I've, I've managed to now work for two clubs which are, are hated by Spurs fans. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's where the most of the tension rises. But, uh, but there are a lot of synergies that, that I could take between the two. Well, I guess just, just Chelsea then and you, and you complete the holy triumvirate. Rog, most people are going to absolutely know most of your background, but perhaps you could give us a quick potted history for those that, uh, those that aren't familiar with you. Oh, everybody knows um, really very little to tell. I am a finance guy, worked in the music industry, I was involved in Scottish football at the end of the 90s, and then I have been involved a lot in um, sport tech investment and consulting around the changes and the disruption of, of sport. So I wouldn't go any further than that. But I would like to ask Tom... We sat together in your ground, Grant, uh, Craven Cottage, as we watched a game, I think it was Scotland versus Nigeria, and uh, we got chatting. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been uh, Fulham, let's face it. And I, I told him my, one of my great heroes in, in sport was the magnificent Michael Holding, who, like many kids of my generation, when we were meant to be studying over the summer, were really watching um, the test matches and I always remember with Michael Holding that at some point in his career, he decided to go off the short run, which I found desperately disappointing because whispering death in full flow was something really to behold. And then I remember one test match where, you know, from mid-off or mid-on or wherever he was getting the ball thrown to him from, he, he, he dropped it and went behind him. And everybody in the crowd realised and started shouting, "The long run, Michael! The long run!" And he and he obliged and and put in a small burst of uh, overs from the from the full run up. And I was telling this to Tom, and he said, "Of course, you know, I have faced Michael Holding, <laughs> and at that point, I don't think I was interested in Scotland, Nigeria. <laughs> Tell me more." <laughs> well, it was it, it's what a, was that a like? true story, and I, I was, it, it, you know, that uh, that run is just as intimidating when uh, Mikey was in his mid forties at the time, and I think probably late forties actually, and um, we were. Uh, we're playing a televised game at uh, Worcester. It was a B&H quarterfinal, I think, back in about mid-90s. And uh, uh, we were playing, we were warming up, and Mikey was there with Sky um, doing some commentary. And uh, as he did regularly, he just sort of, um, because he's a former Derbyshire player, um, he came down to the nets. We were all warming up and uh, having nets and stuff. And I was batting at the time, and Mikey said, do you mind, you know, boys, if, all right, if, I, can, if I can throw a few down? And of course, you know, that, there's something about it, you know, sort of think, well, okay, we've got Devin Malcolm in there, you've got Dominic Court, you've got Alan Warner, you've got, um, you know, the, the, the Freitas is bowling at you. But there's something about that run-up that uh, it just, it is, it is it's so intimidating. And of course, you know, he was just bouncing in with trainers on and his sky kit, you know, it wasn't like he was in a track suit or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it was every bit as you know. It was making the ball dance and making everyone look silly. So it wasn't just his his pace. It was what he was able to do with the ball, which was absolutely extraordinary. And and he, he is just such an extraordinary athlete, and indeed a great ambassador for the game in pretty much everything he does. Fantastic. Well, well, well let's talk about that a little bit because I think in terms of uh, commentary and 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 also statesman for the game and even around um, you know what's happened with um, Black Lives Matter, you know. Uh, Michael Holding has become a little bit of a doyen of the sport and, and somebody everybody looks up to. And, you know, you contrast that a little bit with um, 
some of the, the the opposite kind of like communications that we've seen around sport recently. And I'm thinking specifically about, you know, certain clubs that tried to do something without really thinking it through and certainly not communicating it properly. Um, how did you guys all live the last couple of months around breakaways and which side of the fence you stood on vis-a-vis tradition, vis-a-vis the need to change in sport and different business models? Because, you know, there were, it really was the story to to end all stories. Tell us a little bit, you guys in the front line, how you how you lived those few days. Angus, perhaps we could start with you, seeing as uh, I guess the, the ESL is probably the biggest example of that. So let's jump in with you. Well, I think I think from our perspective, you know, and from a Leeds United perspective, we're we're you know we're we want the game to evolve, we want the game to improve, and uh, and I don't think we you know we want to be looking forward. Um, but actually, the 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 ESL really just um, just really made us really angry because we felt it was an attack on everything that's great about British football. Um, I'm a real believer, both as, both as a fan and as, and as a professional in the, in the football pyramid. I think it was, it's what makes the, the, the British game great that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Luton Town fan. I've had a Luton Town season ticket for, um, for 35 years. I've watched them in every single division. I've watched them at 98 different away grounds. Um, most of it's been painful, but it's, uh, that, that's sort of where the beauty lies. And I felt for Leeds United after we'd worked for 16 years to get back into the into the Premier League, and you know we aspired to play against the great clubs, Manchester United, Liverpool. You know, that's what we want to be part of. And um, I think there uh, the uh, the Machiavellian act that, that that they that they try to get away with. I mean, it is nothing short of a, a disgrace. It's you know I think it's one of the biggest crimes that. The, the sport has the sport has ever seen. There are no redeeming features about it. Not only would it have created a, a sporting cartel at European level, it would have destroyed the domestic game. Um, it would have destroyed the dreams of my players, of our young supporters. Um, and um, I think the only positive thing to come about from it was the way that uh, football unified against it at every single level. And I've been in, in me, you know, meetings with all the Premier League chief execs. And it's not all, always a time, you know, getting 14 people aligned to something is normally challenging. Yeah. But all the other clubs, um, you know, were so firmly against it. And it just made us all realise, you know, what's important about, about the game we love and that we have to protect it. And it went beyond protecting our individual clubs' positions to, to try to protect the game for, for future generations. It, it, I think the attack really was that serious. Angus, was there, was there any point or any part of the response that caught you by surprise because because you know this is something roger and i have spoken about for months now and and rog i think will say he thinks it was inevitable this was going to happen at some point did either the announcement catch you guys off guard like it did the public or the response or was it pretty predictable how this would go down i think after project big picture we knew that that what those clubs wanted wasn't going to go away Their, their owners have a fixed position um and we knew it would we knew it would resurface i think um we didn't know it was going to come as quickly as it did i think the only thing i was um surprised about was uh just quite how incompetently it was executed um yeah. because we're dealing with intelligent people these people have got you know financiers and bankers and lawyers and communications professionals and we sat in the meetings thinking about how the Premier League and the clubs would respond, thinking that there would be some trump card that would be played or some manoeuvre which would at least make this make sense to, to, to the supporters or to the players. 
And instead, um, I mean, we played in the first game after the after it was announced against uh, against Liverpool, and um, uh, uh, you know, I ended up feeling sorry for the Liverpool players and for Jurgen Klopp, who were you know who were just hung up hung out to dry by their owners, being interviewed on television, trying to defend the indefensible. Um, so for me, it was it was it was just surprising that that such a you know intelligent group of people, even if we didn't believe in the uh, um, in the concept of what they were trying to deliver, but I was surprised they delivered it quite as badly as they did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, look, uh, Jim and, and Tom, you know, cricket is something that's had plenty of kind of history of this kind of stuff, breakaway leagues and um, you know apartheid problems and, and all kinds of things. When you watch this play out. Jim, what were your thoughts on the on the ESL with, with, with kind of cricket as a background? Well, I, I mean, I think I'd echo everything Angus said. I, I was I was surprised and staggered by the the level of disconnect that it showed between the ownership and and the people actually in the clubs on a day to day basis. Who, in my view, a lot of them are very good people, very bright people, very committed to the clubs and to the communities. I, I think it's it, it really, from a wider sports perspective, it brings into a really interesting question about the future and this battle between what investors want for for their clubs or their organisations and what's actually good for the sport. And I think that battle for the soul of sport and for the supporter is going to be very interesting moving forward. And I know, you know, there's been, Tom's had some of this in cricket with the, the challenges around is the 100 the right thing to do for the future of the game or, or not. But I think it's going to come across every single sport. And I thought... You know, Perez said some, some some ridiculous things, but the interesting one of the interesting things. And I'd be interested whether um, Angus is, is seeing this when he says young people are no longer interested in football. Is that actually being borne out in the data that that younger people are not watching ninety minutes of football in the same way that they used to? And is that a genuine worry for for, for you at Leeds, Angus? Yeah, I think I think engaging with with a younger generation is becoming increasingly challenging. It should become easier with digital um, and, and the routes we have to market. But actually, um, the fact that we have uh, so many things competing for their competing for their time means that football's not as big a part of of their of their interests of their portfolio of interests as it as it used to be. Um, and I think the game has to, you know, continue to 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 reach out to that to that audience to that audience and ensure that they're playing it and ensure it's operating at grassroots level. Ensure that stadia aren't closed shops for um uh, for supporters. You know, even I was a a, um, a Luton Town fan. You know, when Luton weren't playing at home, um, I uh, I could um I could go to the North Bank at Highbury and pay on the gate and go and walk in. You know, now Arsenal's a closed shop. You can't follow Arsenal away from home because they're away season tickets. It's the same at Leeds United. Um, what was odd, though, was I don't think that the, the, the ESL really addressed the problem of appealing to, to a younger audience. Um, I don't think it would have appealed to any, anybody ultimately. You know, the, the beautiful thing about our game is, is competition. And, and if we're going to re-engage a young audience again it's making that competition exciting and unpredictable and surprising um and um all of the things which you know which Leicester have made over over previous seasons all of the things that the playoffs you know give it of of you know a Leeds United being out of the league for 16 years and then finishing ninth and beating Man City away from home those are the things which I think re-engage an audience creating a cartel which just promised you know predictability and dominance and you know and a domestic league where the top six would have always finished as the top six um, just isn't the answer. And I think, it, you know, the game should still 
you know, we should be self-critical. We should look at how we need to um, adopt new routes to market. But I think um, tearing the soul of competition from the game um, isn't what anybody wants. And I think that was very, very uh, clearly and loudly heard by the six clubs involved in, the, in England. Tom, let, let, me, let me turn this over to you for a second, because as, as the chief executive of a sport here in the, in the UK, and seeing as you've faced Michael Holding, there's nothing that you're going to be afraid of in terms of uh, tough questions. But as a chief exec, how would you have handled this situation? How would you have, when you, when you watched this unfold, were there any points in it where you thought to yourself, you know, that's a big mistake, here's how it should have been done? Because you know, Rog laid out for, to me what I thought was a very simple way that it could have been done much better and in such a way that it might actually have had a fighting chance of getting support from kind of fans and leagues and clubs. How, how did you view that through the lens of a chief exec? Well, I, th- I think um, the thing that came through uh, from the benefits of looking from afar from a different sport was that the, it was the arrogance, frankly, of, um, of, of private ownership that is, that is sort of coming through in spades here. The sense that the fans don't have a say and the fans don't matter. There was an, a negligence there that is just in, in business, it's ignoring the customer. So for people who uh, obviously are well-versed in understanding business, it was an astonishing level of arrogance that came about through the presentation of that idea just being laid down saying this is what we're doing next year or whenever it was. And of course, then the the um, you know, the fan response and the media response was, I, suspe- I suspect, very predictable. And I suspect that legal papers um, were prepared and that they knew what was going to come in terms of the, the, the maelstrom of, of, uh, um, of opposition towards it. Um, I think the, the bit that kind of changed everything for them was the, the intervention of government. And, and that just doesn't happen, right? In, in a, mm. you know, within a 24-hour period or 40 hours, you know, 48 hours maybe, but I think it was 24 hours, you have a comment from the Prime Minister about uh, the plans of a, sports, a sporting league. It's all, all is lost at that point, right? Yeah. And, um, and I think that, 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 is, that is just where you see um, the, the, the political power of, of, of mobilising a sport behind an idea or, or behind opposing an idea um, in its best possible light. Um, and, and I think that this is, this is you know, again, from a, you know, I'm very fortunate in the sense that we, we operate in cricket with one, with one body that oversees the whole game. Now, that, that means we have our squabbles, and we, we, we really do. And some of them are written about and some of them aren't. Um, but, you know, it's a difficult relationship to keep the sport under one roof. But the benefit of it is that the roles and responsibilities are very clear. And our responsibility as the governing body of, of the game in this country is to protect the institutions, is to protect the fans, to protect the game. And fundamentally, also to grow the game, and um, and sometimes those two things rub up against one another. Um, and it's only through relationships, decision making, good governance, and good consultation that you get those things uh, agreed, or you don't. Um, in 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 the, as the case may be, and we've had some experience of doing this, right? So we haven't always got it right, but what we have singularly focused on is an ability to to ensure that cricket remains relevant and exactly what Angus was saying earlier about you know this battle for attention from 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 young people is so complicated now it's so difficult that we've really got to be doing everything we can to the extent that actually that sport are coming together to uh, to fight this together you know I don't see ourselves as competing with football here or with tennis or with rugby league or rugby union I see ourselves in a battle to put sport at the heart of yeah. 
yeah. the agenda for young people and then leave it up to them to choose uh, what it is that they will and won't choose uh, to do. So there are so many elements of this that just, um, you know, uh, I think for, for cricket, the lessons coming out of it are be really, really careful about the extent to which you offer control to external parties um, of, of elements of your sport. Be careful. It's not always the right answer. It's very rarely, um, you know, you can't, you can't walk in with your eyes closed about what that kind of relationship does. Yeah, it's really interesting, Tom, because that, that's something that you know, Roger and I have chronicled, this kind of influx of particularly uh, in recent years, American money into sport. Uh, and, and the American financiers tend to have a very different view of this. Rog, let, let me bring you in here because uh, something Tom said there, th- this idea about the governing body being responsible for growing the sport is so true. And you've obviously been the chief exec of the Scottish Premier League. But how do you how do you manage the fact that, as you and I have spoken about at length, fans are highly irrational uh, at the best of times? And so trying to grow the game in the interest of the fan when let's face it, many times fans don't think about what's in their best interest. They have loyalty and passion that override any kind of sensible decision-making process. How, how do you deal with that? Listen, it's a great question. I'm not going to revisit, you know, the last two months podcast we've done, but I'll take your question on its own merits. Let's take the ultimate fan-controlled organization, Barcelona. Is Barcelona financially stable? Is Barcelona a well-run company? How do they manage to spend so much more money than they actually generate? It's because when they've got an election, people promise the fans what they want to hear. So, yes, be very careful when you don't listen to your fans, but also be very careful when you do listen to them because they are not on the same side as sustainable financial business. I think... Everything the guy said, I understand. I obviously don't agree with all of it because, you know, it depends like everything in life on how much you believe the the status quo is problematic. And for people sitting in the English Premier League just now, the world is a world of milk and honey. It's not for the ones in the championship. It's not for the ones in smaller leagues, et cetera, et cetera. I personally believe that the status quo is, 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 struggling quite a lot. And then in terms of be careful about um, not letting people come in, well, the best way to not have to let people come into your sport is to run it so you don't need their finance. As soon as you're running losses and you need somebody to cover that, you need to listen to what they want. So I don't disagree with anything that's been said. And I think like everybody has always um, looked at this, balance is the key thing. Um, really skillful uh, administrators. You know, Tom in, in, in cricket, I think, is is doing a wonderful job. But like he said, he's one one person running the whole sport. Even uh, in, in other sports like, like football, you know, um, the English Premiership is a member's association. Scottish Premiership is a member's association. Um, uh, then you then you've got the the FAs that have got a different mandate. So so the whole governance and the whole kind of like business model of trying to make yourself sustainable is kind of set up to fail. And a lot of that, in my opinion, is because if you look at it, Barcelona, if you put it in the hands of the fans, they will make you spend more than you should. 
Yeah, always. Well, Angus, perhaps you can cast a, a, a little light on that and take us inside that process because thanks to the, you know, Sunderland Till I Dies of the World and the Amazon All or Nothing shows, we as fans have had a glimpse inside the kind of the, the, the boardroom level process that goes into running sports organisations. But obviously we don't get full access and and, and the, the, the interesting stuff for this podcast is not the stuff that makes a great TV, unfortunately. But um, how do you handle that pressure to run something purely as a business when the people you essentially report to in terms of everyday screaming and shouting at you have no interest in balancing the books. They just want to win and they want to play attractive football and all those things that we as fans love. How do you deal with those two competing pressures? Because it must be an almost impossible thing to do. It's it's very challenging. And I think you have to accept going into it that it's it's more it's more than a business. And whilst you have to try and um, adopt and embrace some of the principles of business, you need to accept that that's not your ultimate objective. I mean, as we sat down as a board when when Andrea Radrazzani um, uh, bought Leeds United, our vision was to to make Leeds United great again. We have no metrics around around revenue growth or or uh, enterprise value that we need that we need to generate other other than what do we need to do to put the best the best players on the pitch and make ultimately we see our vision as trying to make the 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 city of Leeds and, and Leeds supporters proud of their club again and um, that's different from from any any normal business now obviously we need to do that in a sustainable way and no one nobody knows that better than Leeds United fans who who went through the through the through the years when they gambled on the yeah. Champions League and didn't make it and as a result have had 16 years of of pain and hurt yeah. and visiting League One um, uh, and you know we need to make sure that's not repeated, and we're 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 growing in what we see as a sustainable as a sustainable way. Um, but like all businesses, it comes with um, an element of risk, and we were very transparent with the fan base um, the season before last. We lost out in the playoffs to Derby. We wanted to keep Marcelo. We wanted to keep the squad together, and we said to the fans, "We can give it one more season. We think it's a very sensible risk because we've come so close, and we think we're going to get better." And we had the data and the metrics for the performance side to suggest that we were. But we were honest with the fan base and said, "If we don't make it this year and, and we get promotion, then the club will have to have a reset." And it was a reset that we could manage. It wasn't going to be disastrous, but it was going to be a significant financial reset. And I think in the um, uh, in the review that, that the government are, the independent review that the government have now commissioned into football, they're going to need to be very careful, just, to, just as, we were, as we were saying earlier, because the principle of fan involvement, just it sounds like it makes absolute sense. But, but it's very, very challenging. You, you know, you're exactly right. Supporters don't make the right decisions. I was taught we have a supporters advisory board, which is, which is I think, as close to most clubs have as, as supporters, you know, having an involvement in board decisions. But of course, ultimately, what they want to do is they want to get involved in the playing decisions because that's what matters. Um, and you can't have fans deciding whether you sell your marquee player because it might be the right thing to do. It might be the right thing to do from a technical perspective or from a financial perspective, but it's never going to be the right thing to do from a supporter's perspective. So I think the challenge of this review is going to be come up to come up with a, a structure which allows supporters um, a more meaningful role in the running of their clubs but at the same time allows clubs to, to run successfully financially and, and from a sporting perspective with executives who, who are 
paid an expert in making the right decisions. And it's a very tough balance to strike. Yeah, it, it is. But the ironic thing is right now, it seems to me that we've we've never had more accurate insight into, or at least the ability to gain accurate insight into what the fans think, want, desire, hate, love, you know, because of the, this rise of data in sport. Jim, let me come to you. This, this ability to use data, which is becoming ubiquitous and the, the level of granularity that's available is just growing exponentially by the, by the month, it seems. What, what role does data play in trying to manage these kinds of tough decisions? And is it being used correctly? Well, I mean, I think it's, um, it is in some cases. I think that I would always go to the quality of the executive and their ability to use the data and interpret the data and, and the ones that are more effective um, will do, do, we'll do it better. I mean, I think on, on Angus's point about um, the, the, where the clubs have got to, I, I think the dice are loaded against you increasingly in terms of running a sustainable club. Um, and, and this governance structure, governance review has to happen in football to, to try and find a way forward. Um, but one of the things that struck me over the years is that there are good examples of lots of good clubs where they've the, the ownership, whether it's a local ownership or a, an overseas ownership, have built the trust of the fans and, and got to understand and know the fans. And to answer your question, Grant, I, I think part of it, the, the data issue is sometimes that the best way of understanding the fans is still engaging with them regularly, being part of the community. So you look at the Brightons and the Norwiches, two examples of clubs that are run really well and competing um, you know, punching above their weight. You look at Tony Bloom there and the patience he's shown and how he's built the club. You look at Delia Smith and, and the role she's played in that community and the building of that fan base over time. And actually, it's just about being in the community and engaging with that community and getting to understand and know what that fan base is like, which helps you to ride the more difficult times. So, yes, the data is helping to, to, to build that understanding and picture of what the fan base is like and what they're feeling. But actually, you've still got to be there and building those relationships and building that trust with the fan base over a longer period of time. And I think that's the mistake some clubs and owners have made. All right, can I just jump in there? Because it's, um, it's an interesting point that Jim makes. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's about that interpretation of data. You, you know, you go back to the 1920s, whenever it is, and saying, what do we need in order to get people to work faster? They said faster horses. The point is, you know, what came out of that is innovation, which drives end up the invention of the motor vehicle, and then we're off, off, we're off and running. But the point is that what I've tried to ensure is that we, we do – talk a lot and consult a great deal with fans and we as you're absolutely right we now have over 100 data points with every fan that we that buys a ticket through or buys a bit of merchandise or comes in and watches clips and that sort of thing we've got a huge amount of data now that we're interpreting in different ways the point is about interpretation the point is about designing something which meets the meet which which talks about the the answers to the questions the fans are asking because they won't give you the answers what they'll do is explain to them the experiences um, it reminds me of a, a quote that Eddie Jones um, came up with, which I think is in one of his brilliant books that I really enjoy reading. But he said, if you listen too much to the fans, you'll soon be one. Agreed. And, and that's the point of, um, you know, that, that this is about understanding where passion meets, um, you know, uh, where, where, where passion and emotion plays such a role in our, in our thinking. Um, for us, 
uh, at ECB, I've tried to instill this, this concept of innovation being in the DNA of the organization. So always challenge. Don't be afraid to disrupt and don't be afraid to come up with bold responses to things because ultimately we are charged and stewarded with the responsibility for taking the game through the period of time that we're you know been put in those positions and that's a huge responsibility you won't be judged next week or next month by by how you've done you'll be judged in 10 years time uh, uh, on the performance of your sport over the time that you've been involved and I've always been trying to push um, my team certainly to to not fear disruptive opportunities they might not be the right ones, but let's talk about them. Let's let's make sure that DNA uh, involves a big chunk of, uh, of of innovation because that that's that's where the that's where some of the uh, the, the positive results can come from. You know, Tom, it's, it's interesting because I don't think any sport has has adapted better, faster, and perhaps more dramatically than cricket. You know, you guys have done a phenomenal job in adapting to changing tastes. Um, you know, with the various shorter format games, which which again plays into this idea that that Angus brought up earlier on, that, that fans don't want to p- potentially watch 90 minutes anymore. They want shorter, more punchy, more exciting comment. And again, this is something Roger's talked about at length for, for, for years now. But is there a point where you're in danger of pushing that too far? Because the, the Moors of today want short, punchy cricket. You're giving that to them. Is there a point where you worry about losing the soul of the game, the five-day test match? Because that, again, it's another very difficult balance to try and to try and manage the, the the quick answer to your question is of course the the you know we we are always balancing tradition heritage um and building our building our fans for test cricket in particular right and the longer form of the game that is the the format that most people on this call would have been grow, grown up with and it's the most precious format it's the one that in this country we have uh, a prevalence for, which is a greater prevalence than any other part of the world for test cricket. What we also have to keep one eye on, though, is the ability for us to keep migrating people through uh, the formats. And we know that for people to come in and start to understand test cricket as a starting point is a very difficult thing to do. We also know now, because we've done a huge amount of work on this, that test cricket's never been more popular than it is right now in this country. And we're seeing that because of short-form cricket and people migrating through uh, the formats and starting to get a deep understanding of the game uh, from quite a young age. But you have to provide those entry points and you have to provide that opportunity for people to uh, have a quick experience of cricket. And that by, by that, I mean, you know, effectively um, getting people's attention in a very, in a, in a, in a very short time period of time, because that, that's what we know people demand these days. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in. You've probably got, you know, you've got about seven or eight minutes to capture someone's attention um, over the court, and, and, and that can be the hook. Um, when IPL started, they they tried to achieve three things um, in 2007, 2008. Uh, one was uh, to give new talent uh, an opportunity in India, uh, and that's different from us because we have a really thriving domestic game as it is. The second was to bring in new money to the game, which they were very successful at. And the third one, which was really interesting, was to ensure that the the, the matriarch of the household which is in India typically very large households, four and a half, five, five people per household, had control, who has control of the remote control at, the, at that time of the evening, was watching cricket. So how do we make this appealing to the person who controls the viewing habits of the household? 
Now, our, our challenge here, and obviously what's happened in IPL is historic and, um, and, and very meaningful in our game and continues to be. What we're trying to do is, is understand that in this country, we've got 11 million fans of cricket, but only 1 million uh, are really uh, turning up to grounds in their droves and, uh, and, and supporting county cricket. We know we've got a huge opportunity. And we also know uh, that for whatever reason, our game isn't as broadly positioned in this country as the country continues to change and become more multicultural and become uh, you know, incredibly diverse and more urban. Uh, the cricket needs to answer those questions and, and needs to be really deliberate about uh, the way in which we answer those questions. So it's, uh, it's an interesting challenge. Tom, let's continue on that a little bit. Uh, the IPL, I think, uh, I buy completely the, the, this, this idea of trading up a fan. Uh, it's like, you know, luxury's known this strategy for years. You start them off at Emporio Armani and you end up at Black Label. Uh, I, I think that's very smart and I think cricket's done that great. In terms of IPL, that's a slightly different thing for me. That's um, somebody coming in and seeing a business opportunity um, often in a, in a sport where maybe they haven't really looked in terms of marketing and in terms of you know business and everything like that. The, the challenge, I think, in these circumstances is um, uh, the growth of that uh, child that becomes uh, the gorilla that eats up the rest of the sport from the most basic level around the sporting calendar. It demands more time. It demands more of the players. You have to end up squeezing test matches and international football, if, I'm, if I jump across sports, around what is the money generator. And, and I guess the point I'm making is, in football, I think that's what the English Premiership has done. Uh, and you see its effects maybe more clearly now than a year ago because of ESL and because of so many teams in the championship going bust. I'm a great believer in my phrase, follow the money. And, and, and I know it's not popular in sport, but I honestly think if we ignore it and we don't try and, and, and uh, predict where money will create tensions and friction, we're not doing the best job as executives. Yeah, um, sorry, Roger. I think are you, um, I think it's it's a good point, and uh, yeah, the ultimate balance that we are trying to strike all the time is is to create this um, this narrative uh, for uh, for for everyone who follows the game, whether you're a, whether you're a fan, whether you're a player, whether you're an administrator. The point the point is, I think that certainly from cricket's perspective, we are we are an international uh, format funded game. The, the money that generates uh, that, that floats cricket in this country is 95% from the international game. So yep. um, that, that, is a, that, that, that tells you about where our priorities are. Um, in other parts of the world, that dynamic is shifting and uh, it's shifting quite quickly. Yep. And we have to be cognizant of that because our reliance on international cricket is, is all well and good. And cricket's never been, you know, international cricket's never been as uh, in, in better health than it is right now. Um, and you can, you know, take my word for it that in terms of international sales, as soon as we put the uh, the matches on sale for this summer, which is uh, you know a great series against New Zealand, uh, five Test match series against India at the end of the series with two one day uh, packages of uh, of matches at Sri Lanka and Pakistan in the middle, they just you know we've never sold tickets so quickly. So the game is in is in great shape. The problem is in other parts of the world that is that is shifting very quickly, and we rely at least to a, a partial extent on on overseas opposition for our continued 
um, health in that space. So we've got to balance our books somehow. We've got to create something that enables us not to be entirely reliant on the international game. If you well if you were looking at our business plan, you'd be saying, you know, wow, that is that is first of all hugely reliant on international cricket. Secondly, hugely reliant on uh, pay TV. Those are the two uh, massive risk factors in the, the ECB business plan. So, you know, we're trying to address that through long-term engagement and growth of uh, the number of people that care about our game in this country. And I think we're, we're well on the way to achieving that. Angus, let, let, let me bring you back in. We're, we're talking about growth opportunities. We're talking about the money in sport. You guys have recently had investment from the San Francisco 49ers. And uh, Roger and I spoke to Al Guido, who's a, just a tremendous guy, a, a while ago. What's their roadmap here? What, what are the 49ers looking to do as they move into soccer, let's call it, because I'm sure you, you have that battle on a daily basis now. Yeah, I think the um, uh, the the guys at the 49ers, and as you know, you, you know Al, you know, ultimately they're, they're sports fans at, at, at heart. And I think um, uh, Jed, who's the, who's the principal, yeah. um, he's, he's fallen in love with, with Leeds United um, and, and Parag, our vice chairman, the, the same. Um, I think they see, um, uh, like Andrea did, huge potential in Leeds United probably above any other club in Europe. Uh, when I joined, I always thought it was the most investable club in, in probably in European football. I think it's the, the biggest city in Europe not to have a team regularly in the Champions League. Um, it's the biggest uh, population area in, 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 the, in the UK with only one club in it. Fantastic heritage. Um, and I think the difference for, for, for them is that they, they see, and it was the same when I was at Arsenal with, with Stan Kroenke, you know, he saw it as, and they see it as a, uh, as a truly international proposition. And I don't think the NFL, the NFL has that. The NFL is really, really, you know, domestically dominated. Yeah. And, um, you know, Stan used to talk about, uh, you know, traveling around the world and he owns, you know, multiple teams. And the only team as he was going around the world that anyone wanted to talk to him about was Arsenal. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think it's that international potential that, 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 it, that, it, that excites them. Um, and I also think they see a, um, they see uh, a roadmap of, uh, for Leeds United, you know, breaking into and challenging the top six. I don't think there's many clubs that, uh, and I hate the phrase the top six, but because uh, they made it up, or the or the big six. But uh, but 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 the, the, the you know the self-titled big six. Yeah, I right. think we, um, you know, Leeds United has the has the scale and potential to 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 operate at that level. And I think that's what the 49ers see, and we're really benefit benefiting from their their operational expertise um, and their technical expertise as well, because when it comes to uh, conditioning and sports medicine, um, they're leaders in their field, and, and we're really enjoying those synergies at the moment. So I can't speak for the ownerships, the American ownerships of other clubs, but but for us, I think we've found some partners who who are supporters of Leeds United, um, are very... Uh, um, uh, a big believers in in the values um, around British football, and I think you know Parag was interviewed uh, recently, and he was asked what the financial penalty should be on the teams who who plotted in the Super League, and he said, you know, the, the biggest penalty is the fact that they've uh, lost the trust of their fan bases, and that's going to be take the longest and be the most expensive thing that they'll you know that they'll take them to win back. Yeah. But I think we're I think we're in a we're in a we're in a good position, and I think we've got investors who are who are involved because because they love the sport rather than. Um, any discussion on on return on return on investment, and I think ultimately, as you look through the, the football pyramid, that's why the majority of people are in, in, involved in it, and I think that's what that's what keeps it that's what keeps it special at every level. Interestingly, Grant Parag, who uh, Angus is talking about, is also the chairman of USA Cricket. 
So we've got a close connection with them and uh, also with the 49ers. So there's an interesting uh, parallel here. And I'll tell you what, with that kind of um, oversight um, across cricket in the USA, which is in a really, really interesting place, you can uh, look forward to some explosive growth in that part of the world for uh, for a sport that has a real opportunity, I think. See, that's fascinating to me because you know, I've watched USA Rugby grow and been really impressed with how they've grown the game of rugby. But I, I'll be honest with you, Tom, I didn't even realise there was a cricket USA. So that's... I mean, that's a huge opportunity. But as you say, it's a huge challenge because, you know, baseball is the national game in, in America. And, it, and it's something that is deeply, deeply ingrained in, in the culture, the psyche, all of it. You know, so and cricket, one would imagine, is going to be competing, you know, not directly, but baseball is going to be where you're going to get a lot of your fans from. How do you go about trying to persuade Americans that there's something other than baseball? Well, I'd start with the South Asian diaspora, which is 25 million strong um, and has extraordinary access to, you know, um, to investment. Um, you know, there's a huge uh, influx of talent uh, going into the US from India, from the South Asia generally. Um, and it's probably a, a, a kind of one generation opportunity. But, um, you know, a huge number of first generation, second generation Americans now who have a natural inbuilt uh, connection with cricket through their parents and uh, through their, their, their connection with India and South Asia. This is um, this is where cricket has an opportunity. And, you know, it doesn't matter about baseball or NFL or ice hockey or, you know, even MLS, you know, there's a huge competitive uh, landscape there, but it's a massive market. Um, you know, you don't want to be thinking in terms of competing with something. Just com- try and create something that's relevant. Create some investment, build some stadia, get the world's best players to play cricket over there, and you're going to have something that people want to watch. It's as simple as that. Um, and I think personally, uh, given the conditions that are in the U.S. now with the, with the likely um, investment of Silicon Valley um, CEOs, and they're all cricket nuts, um, you can be very certain that um, that uh, if they do decide to take the opportunity very seriously, and I think they are deciding to take that, then uh, cricket can get on the map in the USA quite quickly and will attract the attention of ICC um, very quickly. In the same way that FIFA took a global event there in, in the mid-90s for uh, football, you can expect to see something, I think, for the US in cricket, hopefully in the next uh, five to ten years. That's fascinating. I will definitely be watching that. Jim, let me ask you, we, we're talking about you know, Silicon Valley CEOs and, we, and we're talking about the, the, the kind of power brokers in, in sport. From your view where, where you sit in all this, how has the, the kind of requirements for C-suite executives in sport changed? Because it must be a very fast evolving dynamic and you, you must have seen an incredible shift in, in the kind of resumes required to take these roles. And they must be changing almost daily, I would imagine. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think I've been working for eleven years in in the sports industry, and and what I've seen is it moving from being very much volunteer run, amateur led, and you know, you'd see stories all the time of the commercial director at the rugby club being the guy who managed to run a successful testimonial or benefit series, and the same at the cricket clubs, and then became the commercial director, and then the right. CEO. Right. So certainly, over the last ten or eleven years, there's been you know a professionalisation and increasing sophistication in terms of the. Talent talent that's coming in and increasing opportunities as well for people to actually have a proper career in sports. So you look at someone like Angus coming from a PNG background, you were quite 
quite rare uh, 10 or 11 years ago, Angus, I think, when you came into the industry to have that kind of background. But now that is much more the norm in, in bigger organisations of taking people who are you know, well-trained from big blue-chip organisations to work in the sports industry. So I think that trend will only accelerate in the next 10 or 11 years. The professional investors have very, very high standards for their senior executives. My only worry for the senior executives is that I think their roles are becoming more and more demanding, more and more stressful. There's more and more um, things that can go wrong that they're held responsible for, whether it's uh, you know corruption, safeguarding, the commercial side, making sure they win every single Saturday and Tuesday when they're playing football or they beat Australia 5 million, the Ashes next uh, winter. So the jobs are becoming increasingly challenging. And, and so that's the only balance, I think, that comes here with the professional investment is the well-being and the, and the health and the actual success in post of senior executives in the, in the next iteration. That's interesting, Jim. You know, I do some work for private equity, looking to invest in sport just now. And I have to say, and, and you know, I, I'm talking about an industry that I've been involved in myself. I have to say that the quality of work that I see from them is just higher. You know, they may not know the industry as well, but, you know, when I see some of the things they present and they've prepared and they come to me and say, well, p- pick holes in this, Often I'm blown away by, by, by the level of detail and, and, you know, I think that we've got a long way to go still. And, and you know, one of the things I'd like to ask all three of you a little bit is, I guess I'm seen a little bit as a Cassandra, somebody that believes in revolution, not evolution. But, you know, I just look around and, and, and I'll give you this one example from another sport, boxing, where one of my countrymen, Josh Taylor, became undisputed world champion all four belts, a very rare occurrence, probably not known to uh, a lot of people listening to this podcast. Whereas an up-and-coming fight with um, uh, Logan Paul and and, and Mayweather uh, is is going to do what the last fight did as well. So I, I, I am much more of the belief that be very, very careful traditional sport because there are alternatives around that could eat your lunch very quickly unless you move quicker than you think you need to what what do you think am am i just way too pessimistic there i i would say that this this yeah there is an evident danger that 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 does happen and some of the traditional sports um do struggle but i wouldn't underestimate the creativity and ability to innovate that lots of the bigger sports have and and their ability to respond and adapt to 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 these changing dynamics i i think sport is pretty resilient i actually think in the short to medium term, um, in particular, the outlook's very strong because I think people are going to continue to want to invest in sport. And that investment, as you say, Roger, will bring in some added rigor, some added quality uh, and some added opportunity for people. So I'm pretty bullish about the future for all sports. Um, And I like the competitiveness of new sports emerging because I think that keeps everybody on their toes and forces that innovation and creativity to continue. Yeah, gentlemen, we're slowly running out of time, unfortunately. But before we wrap this up, I'd just like to ask each of you what you think is perhaps the biggest challenge facing sport right now. We've, we've, you know, we've come through the pandemic, and obviously that's the easy one to point at. But in terms of growing the game, you know, we've seen golf, for example, come out of the pandemic arguably much stronger than it went in. We've seen an awful lot of pressure put on lower league football clubs 
Angus, cricket also. Pandemic aside, what what do you think is the biggest challenge facing not not just your own sport, but sport in general, Angus? So for me, it's interesting. Around you know, I I, I agree with Jim. I think that the the, uh, the core for the for the for the for the big sports will remain relatively robust and and strong. But for where I sit, and, and this is from putting my other hat on, it's some of the more peripheral sports. I think there's a real challenge, and you know, we see it in um in British weightlifting. Uh, British weightlifting is is a is a is a sport which, like many other sports, you know, receives most of its funding from a combination of UK Sport and Sport England. The messages from those two sports organisations are: if we continue to to be to have the low level of relevance that we have currently, that funding is going to dry up. And I find myself on calls, um, uh, and you get with the with the other sporting bodies, but I'm increasingly with parkour or break dancing or competitive rock climbing. Um, and these are sports that are in the ascendancy. And uh, the other people on the call are um, you know, British weightlifting and fencing. And we've put together with those sports because we're about the same size, but the trajectories are totally different. Yeah. And so I'm at the moment trying to champion in, 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 in weightlifting, you know, some changes in format that can make, uh, you know, weightlifting relevant again, because effectively the two, in, the two um, traditional Olympic lifts are so challenging for people to do. There's a huge barrier to, barrier to entry, whereas actually resistance training is, is, you know, one of the most popular physical activities that the, the nation takes part in. And I think if sports like that don't get it right, then they are really then they are really in danger. They're in danger of losing their funding. They're in danger of losing their Olympic status. And I think there will be there's a number of smaller sports which are you know loved by small sections of the population, but unless they can broaden their appeal, I think they're really under threat. Jim, let me let me come to you with that same question if I can. I think the biggest challenge I would look at is is in terms, from, certainly from a people perspective, it is about how we retain and develop the best people in our industry to ensure that we have an increasingly diverse and talented uh, senior executive. Uh, the, there's been progress made there, but, but there are too many parts of the industry which are not diverse enough uh, and are not um, utilizing the full kind of breadth and, uh, of the talent pool available. So I, I think that sport has traditionally underinvested in its people. And I think that that investment in looking after people and developing people is the core challenge that's going to face most organizations in the next few years. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great point. That idea that you know, if you want these super C-suite executives that could really run a C-suite of any business anywhere in the world, you're going to have to pay them commensurately. And that's going to be a tough thing for a lot of sports to do, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, the pay is catching up, um, I think, with with other industries. But it's more, the the bit which I don't think has caught up yet is the development and the real investment in training and and helping people to get better at their jobs. It's a relatively unique skill set, being a a senior executive of a sports organisation. And I'm not sure that... Uh, there's enough going into that side of it at the moment. Fantastic. And and Tom, if I can just uh, wrap things up with you, your, your, your thoughts on those challenges. Yeah, sure. I've probably got two, Grant. One, from an international cricket perspective, I think it's about the calendar and the narrative of the game, which um, with so many competing forces, uh, domestic leagues, yeah. international tournaments, bilateral cricket, which um, all are competing for uh, a limited number of days in the calendar and the impact on players is very significant player workloads and all of that. So yeah. there's a huge job to do around that and that there's no easy answer to that one. And I think domestically in this country, there are challenges around participation and just, you know, there's a very close link between the success of our sport historically in this country and the number of people playing it. 
Uh, and I, I just, you know, we, we put so much work into this. But the, the key point is um, the, the link between participation and the sustainability of our sport at senior level is, 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 is it's, you know, it's there for all to see. We're 11 times more likely to have somebody engaged in the game if they play it. So, um, yeah, those two things for me are, are, are where, and there's a huge number of other challenges, obviously, but um, they, they spring to mind. Fantastic. Look, gents, uh, I can't believe an hour has flown by already. It's been such an interesting conversation. We've finished up with challenges there, so hopefully at some point we can get you all back to talk about broader opportunities, which uh, which I thoroughly enjoy doing. But before I do wrap up, perhaps um, perhaps I could let you tell people listening how they can kind of follow you more, where they can find out more about uh, about you, whether it be personally or, or from a from a kind of organisational perspective. Angus, perhaps uh, we'll kick off with you again. I don't think anyone's interested in following me, but um, if you want to watch... Uh, if you want to watch the most swashbuckling um, attacking team in English football, which I've described recently as it's an irresistible footballing renaissance, then uh, become a member of Leeds United, uh, buy tickets, uh, come to the ground. And if that doesn't take float your boat, then be, uh, become a member of British weightlifting. I've just got to figure now how to get James to edit the words Fulham over Leeds United and that thing, and he's done my job for me. Jim, over to you. Oh, thank you again, likewise. I mean, our, our website, SRI Executive, um, we're, there's plenty of our stuff on LinkedIn as well. So, so yes, follow as you'd like to. Lovely. And finally, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Grant. Um, look, I, I, I'm not social media um, friendly, if you like. Well, um, good for you. And if you want to know why, then just Google my name <laughs> and you'll find out. <laughs> But it's not a job that uh, lends itself to a sort of friendly social media following. But um, no, look, we've got a lot of great things happening. I'd encourage everyone to uh, to try and catch a game of cricket live. It might surprise you exactly what's happening in our grounds these days. And uh, watching cricket now is 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 a there's no there's simply no better way to spend a day in the summer summer's afternoon. So uh, get down to your local county ground uh, and support your local team because. Um, it's a fantastic sport. Well, hopefully the English weather will at some point start to uh, cooperate with you because it's been it's been a hell of a summer so yeah. far. Gentlemen, you must have played in summer. We're thinking yeah. of moving it to all summer. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been such a such an enjoyable conversation, yes, and, and so hopefully we can continue such at some point. It's been really really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Cheers, gents. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, Roger, I've got to say, you know, look, you and I. We both enjoy talking about sport, but to, but to get the chance to talk to you know guys at that level in the industry, it's it's so fascinating understanding their perspective on these things. Yeah, and 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 you know, obviously, people will realise that my own views are probably slightly more uh, to the edges of a spectrum than than what we heard today. Um, but honestly, total respect for what they are doing day in and day out, and actually having to manage this balance. It's easy for people like me to talk about what you need to do and what you should do. But when you're at the cold face like these guys are, I thought that was really, really interesting. I loved Tom talking about how he's having to manage all these um, competing um, levers of, of how the sport is developing. He was very honest about being over-reliant on two revenue streams. Super interesting to hear about that. And of course, interesting to hear um, Leeds United, uh, not currently in what was called the top six, railing against those clubs and what they tried to do. Very, very interesting. And I hope the listeners really got an appreciation. And again, thanks to our friends at SRI. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was interesting to hear Angus talking about the, the ESL. And it makes you realise, I guess, that the problems they've caused by the way they did that extend way beyond the fan bases that these clubs have alienated you know it's going to be a very 
tough thing for them, not just to regain the trust of their fan base, but also to kind of have any kind of credibility back in amongst their peers in the leagues, you know, except the weight of the stick they carry because of their size. I mean, that that's still going to prove to be a very challenging thing for them, I would imagine, Rog. Yeah, well, you know, I have been in situations like that where leagues have fallen apart because of big clubs and small clubs. And uh, I've seen that much closer than I would have liked to. And and all I can tell you is this. Uh, again, it sounds awfully crass, but it's amazing how much money solves things and, and, and bad feeling going forward. Oh, would you mind maybe giving me a three months extra to pay for those tickets I'm taking from you? Blah, 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 blah. It's, I've, it works out really quick, trust me. The, the, there won't be any long-standing bad feeling, you know, once they're around, around the table, meeting in boardrooms, uh, buying players off each other. They're too joined commercially, and um, I, I don't think that's going to last for too long. Fascinating. Well, uh, listen, for anybody listening, I'm sure the big takeaway is uh, they play cricket in America. This, for me, is revelatory. I'm going to go and go down that rabbit hole now, Rog, because uh, it's something that I had absolutely no idea existed. So this is, this, is, this is a real, real surprise to me. Well, I'll take the other side of that trade, Grant. Baseball was struggling in America. I'm not holding out a lot of hope for dear old cricket. Well, let's see. Anyway, listen, all that remains is to thank our panel, Angus Kinnear, Tom Harrison, and Jim Chaplin for, for giving us such a, a fascinating insight into their worlds. And you, Roger, of course, for sitting on the panel and, uh, and chiming in and, and not chiming in too much for once, which is good, I guess. That must, I have, been, so. that must have been a Herculean effort on your side. No, you did a great <laughs> job. Our thanks also, of course, to our wonderful sound producer, sound engineer, wonderful. James in the Cayman Islands. God bless him. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. You can follow us, should you wish to do that. And already, you'll find us on Twitter at EntertainedR. That's the word, A-R-E. You'll find me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And of course, you'll find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. And for those of you out there wondering, you'll find producer James at AIF James. He's out there on Twitter too, lurking. And you really should follow him because he's just a barrel of laughs. <laughs> Until next time, gentlemen. <laughs> Take care. 